In this passage of scripture, Jesus now closes out this prayer for his disciples. What most of your Bibles has t- have titled as the high pre- priestly prayer. Chapter 13 through the beginning of chapter 18 is all one night. Christ's work with the disciples, Christ's teaching with the disciples. And now he has turned his face toward heaven and he's begun to pray for the disciples. In this chapter, he's prayed for himself. He turns and then he says he prays for his disciples. And now he says in this passage, he says, I'm not, it's not just for them, but for everyone else who will believe on my name. So Jesus now turns and prays for the church, which I think is a wonderful thought. What does Jesus consider to be the most important things for his disciples, his church to hear on this night? The last night he has with these disciples before his crucifixion. Is it something that you and I still need to hear? Is there something that the church needs to learn from the voice, from the heart of Jesus Christ at the end of this chapter this morning? We're going to notice that the theme of glory continues. It was strong at the beginning of this passage, and the theme flows through the rest of the chapter, and it continues here in our section again this morning in the life of the church. This prayer includes Christ's desire that you would be with him forever. It's an incredible thought that Jesus Christ on this night has your eternity on his heart and on his lips as he prays. The prayer concludes with Christ's desire that we may know the Father just as he knows him and that we would experience the love of the Father as he loves the Father. This really is prayer for us. The expression of the heart of Jesus Christ on behalf of his people, asking the Heavenly Father to be at work on our behalf. So in this passage today, here's some things that are going to help hold us, help hold this together for us, make sense of this for us this morning. And the first is this, Christ in us is witness to the world. This is the one moment in this prayer that Christ prays for the world, prays for himself, for his disciples, for everyone who will believe on his name. But it's here in this passage, the one moment when Christ prays for the world and he prays that they would learn that he is the Messiah. That's his prayer for the rest of the world. So the question then gets placed upon us. What does the rest of the world see when it sees the church of Jesus Christ? Does it see a mirror reflection of itself or does it see a witness to the one and only Lord Jesus Christ? So Christ in us is witness to the world. Christ prays for unity. This is a, this is a big deal, I think, this morning. And it isn't just any unity. It is the unity that Christ has with the Father and with the Holy Spirit. Jesus prays that we would experience the same kind of unity, that we would be one, just as Jesus says to the Father, just as we are one. So what do we mean by Christian unity? And then at the very end of this prayer, Jesus prays for you to see his glory in eternity. So he keeps praying for our endurance, that the Father would keep us. Remember in the middle of this chapter, Jesus said, while I was here, I kept them. I protected them. I held them. I'm getting ready to leave. They're in the world, but they're not going to be of the world. So Father, I'm going to ask that you keep them now. So Jesus is praying for our endurance And Jesus is praying for our eternal awe when we see Jesus again face to face. 
Well, let's read this passage of scripture. John chapter 17, beginning in verse 20, goes like this. I do not ask for these only, those who are around him, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one even as we are one. I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am to see me in my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you. And these that you have sent me, I made known to them your name and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. Isn't that beautiful? Jesus says, so I'm not praying just for those who are physically with me on this evening. But I also pray, Heavenly Father, for everyone who is going to believe because of their word. Now that they turn and begin to bear witness to me, I'm going to pray for everyone else who's going to believe. So the Jesus movement isn't just a matter the disciples who are around him on this night and the early church that grows up in the first or one or two generations after the resurrection and ascension of Jesus Christ. But Jesus is praying now for everyone in all time who would believe in the name of Jesus Christ because of the witness that is born to him by his disciples. They go into the world witnessing about Jesus Christ and people believe in Jesus. He says, and others will, and those others who will believe through their word. I continue to, to enjoy the way that this works, just kind of how this gets put together. How do you know Jesus? When did you hear about Jesus? Who told you about Jesus? Well, maybe you were blessed and you grew up in a family where you heard about Jesus Christ. You might think, well, I just kind of grew up and when I was young, I, I got to know Jesus. Well, who told your family? Some of you have those moments in your life that you know were dramatic and powerful moments when you heard about Jesus Christ. You're here because someone told you. Someone told your friends. Someone told your family they heard about Jesus. How did we get from a small circle of frightened, confused, socially unacceptable disciples to you here now? How does that happen? Well, it's the stewardship and the power of the Holy Spirit. But as Jesus puts it in this prayer, through their word, through what they say about me, they're going to turn around and they're going to bear witness to the world. So how will the next generation, when all of us in this room are gone, if Christ tarries, how will they know the name of Jesus Christ? It's through their word, through our faithfulness through you and me bearing witness to the name of Jesus Christ. Jesus begins to pray for his church, for everyone who believes, 
that they may all be one. And he says, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. This is his desire for the unity of the church, and this is why he wants it unified, so that the world will learn that you sent me. Jesus says that here in verse 21, and he says it again later in verse 23, what we read, I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me. An important reality for you and me this morning, the unity of the church is witness to the world about Christ. The unity of the church is witness to the world about Jesus Christ. You and me gathering together this morning under the lordship of Jesus Christ, worshiping who he truly and really is in living that life out is not witness about me. It's not witness about us. It's not witness about how cool we are and how great the drummer in our worship band is. Someone needs to get control of that guy. Yeah. It's not witness about any of those things. It's witness about Jesus Christ. It's witness about our Lord and Savior. This is the point that Christ creates a church filled with himself so that whoever believes will live with him now and behold his glory for all of eternity. Notice this. Jesus does not pray for the unity of the church so that the world will like the church, but so that the world will be witnessed to by the church. We're going to talk about it a time or two this morning, but friends, there is so much pressure on the church through the ages. We face it still today to be liked by the world instead of bear witness to it. That's what Christ prays for, that you and I in our unity under Christ would tell the world about Jesus. This is such a beautiful passage. We think about unity in Scripture, and we take a look at a few other passages this morning that deal with this topic. This is one of those that sort of gets lost as the book of Romans ends sometimes, but it's beautiful. I love it. Romans chapter 15, verses 5 and 6. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Christ Jesus. You see, the Apostle Paul is praying for the rest of the church what Christ prayed for him and for them, that we would live in harmony with one another in Christ Jesus, that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. That we, this morning, together, physically, in the, this place, that we, as the universal body of Christ on this weekend, wherever and however we gather together, that we, with one voice, would glorify our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. It's not just you and me, it's all of us. Isn't this beautiful? So we praise this about the unity of the church but then this is also important in this text. Not just any unity will do. Not just any unity will do. Christ prays that his disciples will find unity in the truth of who he is. 
If you slow down and you pay attention to some of what Jesus says in the passage that we read this morning in verse 21 and in verse 22, this unity matches the glorious, eternal, perfect unity that Christ has with the Father. The unity that Christ is praying for is a reflection of the divine unity. This is not political unity. This is not cultural unity. This isn't ethnic unity. This is a reflection of the divine unity. It belongs in God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. In verse 23, this kind of unity leads to the witness that Jesus is the Messiah. Not all forms of togetherness and harmony do that, but this kind of unity does. In verse 25, this unity leads to our knowledge of Jesus Christ. Not to a set of feelings, not to a leap of blind faith, but to our knowledge of who Jesus is and that one day our eyes will be opened so wide that we will see the full glory of Jesus Christ. Psalm 133, verse 1, just very simply says, Behold, how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell together in unity. It's good for the church to find this. It's right for the church to find this. So friends, this is critical. True Christian unity is based completely on Jesus Christ. It's based completely on Jesus Christ. This is where we live in the unity that Jesus desires. We don't assume it. We don't coast in it. But we find it, we guard it, we live in the unity that Jesus Christ desires for us. Now, I think this is important as well. Jesus does not pray that we will find and create and maintain our own sense of unity, but he prays about a unity that already exists in the Father and in himself. Just as I am in you and you in me and I in them, that is how Jesus prays for the unity of the body of Christ. And this is important because the church continues to face powerful peer pressure to unify around all kinds of other things that leave the specifics of Jesus Christ in the background. There is no way around it. The message of the gospel of Jesus Christ puts a line in the sand. Jesus says things like, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except by me. This is the Jesus that we follow. And what happens is that others who are seeking a different kind of unity or others who seek a certain kind of common ground or unity with the world outside of the church, they will say things like, and you will hear things like, well, doctrine is divisive. So what we need to do is put that doctrine in the background and pay attention to a bunch of other things. So doctrine's divisive. Because it's divisive, we need to get rid of it. We hear more and more things like traditional Christianity, those crazy evangelicals, that version of Christianity is exclusive. It's racist. It's oppressive. It's colonialist. And we fix all of those horrible terms by putting Jesus in the background. 
by putting the truth about who he is, how he's revealed himself to us, we say, well, that's no longer important. Some people might believe that, but when you step out into the rest of the world, you leave that behind. This is the kind of pressure that the church faces age after age after age. I read a great little book this week by a great pastor theologian in the middle of the 20th century, Martin Lloyd-Jones, in his book, The Basis of Christian Unity. He simply says this, doctrine is being discounted in the interests of supposed unity. The fact is, however, that there is no unity apart from truth and doctrine, and it is departure from this that causes division and breaks unity. The unity of the church that Jesus prays for, that scripture speaks about, is unity inside of our doctrine, the truth of who Jesus is. We looked at some of those details in the passage that we read here in the last section of chapter 17. We go further back inside of the chapter. We get similar kinds of things told to us about Christ as he prays. Chapter 17, verse 6, Christ is praying for those who keep God's word because they are the ones who belong to Jesus Christ, who keep his word. We've heard that language in John throughout. Chapter 17, verse 8, those who have put their faith in Jesus. How often is Jesus just very simply said in this book, believe in me and you will have eternal life. That's what holds the church together. Chapter 17, verse 17, we repeated it together last week. Jesus prays, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. We are made more like Christ through the word of God, through the word of God read and understood and lived and believed. Jesus says, it's just truth. Your word is truth. There are a couple of key passages in the New Testament that speak of what the unity of the body of Christ is like. The first one is what we're reading this morning in chapter 17, these last few verses of Christ's prayer. One of the other key passages in the New Testament is when the Apostle Paul writes to the Christians in the Ephesian church. So in the middle of the book of Ephesus, he begins to talk to them about how important this kind of harmony and unity is and what it's like. So I want to read a couple of those passages. The first is in Ephesians chapter 4, verses 1 through 6. And listen again to the things that are important to the Apostle Paul that have come right out of the prayer that Christ prays. Paul says this, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, and he means that both in terms of I'm actually physically, literally a prisoner and I am bound by this message I cannot do otherwise. I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. And notice how this calling works. With all grumpiness and angry means and cruel tweets to your neighbor. With all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, 
one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. That same God who is in the church in Ephesus is the same God who is in this church now. One Lord, one Savior, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is in all and through all. He says, I want you to be eager to maintain the unity that is given to you by the Holy Spirit. Maintain the unity of the Spirit. That's what Paul calls it here. You see, our unity is created by the presence of the Holy Spirit. Our unity is maintained by the power and the work of the Spirit of God amongst us. It isn't the unity of any individual pastor and personality. It isn't a unity that is based on our political points of view, our culture, our ethnic backgrounds. It is the unity of the Spirit that transcends all of those things. Everything else that we live and believe is downstream from the work of the Spirit and the truth of Jesus Christ and that kind of unity. Later on in the same passage in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 13, Paul says, Until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. This is the fruit of our unity in Jesus. That we're growing, that we're maturing, and that the world around us sees Jesus more and more. And something else we're going to see this morning is that in our maturity and our growth, the Spirit of God is making us fit for heaven, that our eyes will see the glory of God. So Christ is calling us to this kind of unity. And there are ways to live in false unity. There's plenty of that, which is why it's important for us to understand how Christ speaks of it. False unity, a unanimous agreement to do evil, an agreement a bunch among many to believe what is untrue, a large group of people who are manipulated by powerful actors to behave in false or evil ways. That's what we call a mob. A group of people who are manipulated by powerful actors to behave in false or evil ways. A mob is false unity. It is evil unity. And friends, our culture is in the grasp of mob mentality. There is actually a psychological and sociological term for this. If you want to look it up, it's called mass effect. Have you asked yourself the question, how can so many people believe something that is so obviously wrong? It's called the mob mentality. Our current mob mentality, it's both manufactured and it's manipulated. I want to give you a little glimpse into how it works, and hopefully this will help us see what goes on around us, maybe even in the lives of those that we know and love and we are confused by. Here's how it is manufactured, and here's how it is manipulated. If you separate individuals from their social support system, if you break families apart, if you separate kids from their parents, if you remove people from their social support system, 
if you separate them from their faith, what you've done is you've separated them from their sense of meaning and purpose and ethics and morality in life. You've separated them from all of these things. Then you create what is called free-floating anxiety. Reason after reason after reason to be anxious and afraid. So you've separated them from their social structure. You've separated them from their faith and their sense of meaning and purpose in life. And you've made them constantly afraid and angry. You can get them to do whatever you want them to do. That's how our culture is working right now. Now, it's interesting that one of the first mobs in Scripture was a very unified and very organized group of people who gathered together to glorify themselves above God. It happens all the way back in the book of Genesis. Chapter 11. I'm going to read verses 3 and 4. It's the story of the Tower of Babel, and listen to how it goes. And they said to one another, Come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. So they put some engineers together and workers together. They gathered together, and they had brick for stone and bitumen for mortar. Then they said, Come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top to the heavens, and let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. We will gather together. We will do great things to glorify ourselves. It is sin to accept a unity that glorifies us or believes falsehoods about God. You don't hear this kind of stuff often, but this is important for us. And now entire churches and denominations are building their theology and unity around political and cultural agendas. And it is a false unity. Friends, when human beings try to create a sense of harmony or unity and they diminish the role of God or they get rid of God altogether, it's not unity, it's coerced uniformity is what it is. It's peer pressure, it's coercion, it's cancel culture, and then eventually it is just straight up tyranny. But the unity that is given by the Spirit is family, life, joy, and salvation. This is the unity that the church is about. So friends, unity without truth is just a false unity. And truth is in Jesus Christ. Now notice I did not say our truth is in Jesus Christ. The truth is in Jesus Christ. So Christ prays for unity among us and then he prays about his desire for eternal unity with us. Let me say that again. You think this is buckle up because this is going to get good. He prays for unity among us, his disciples. And then he prays about his desire for eternity, eternal unity with us. Father, I desire that they also, 
may be where I am. Because there, Father, you're going to give me the glory that I had with you before the foundation of the world, and they will be with me. Your eternal destiny is on the heart of your Savior. It's on his lips on this night when he prays for his disciples and everyone who would believe in his name. If you are a follower of Jesus Christ, if you believe in him and receive his forgiveness, Jesus gives you abundant life now and eternal life with him. Isn't that incredible? He wants you to know him, to believe in him and to know him in this life and for that knowledge to become full and complete in eternity with him. He wants you to know now how much he loves you Because in eternity, we're going to see fully and completely what the love of God is truly about. He wants you to experience the love that he has with the Father and the love that he shows us. I hope this is attractive. It's supposed to be attractive to us. It's supposed to be the kind of thing that stirs something within us that says, I want that. And if I believe I have it, I need to think something like, I want to have that more. I want to know more of Jesus now. I want to know more of his love now. And I don't even know how to describe what it's going to be like when I will see that in its full, perfect glory. But this little fact is incredible to me. What Jesus wants most is not only that we would be with him, but that we would be with him. That we would behold his eternal, perfect glory and that his love amongst us would be full. Friends, it will be great that I get to be in heaven for all of eternity but I will not be the greatest thing there. The greatest thing about eternity is not me. It is my God. John, the disciple who writes this, gets this incredible glimpse into the throne room of God as he begins to wrap up all of human history. And his people are in his presence His divine created beings are in his presence. The elders are in his presence. The four living creatures are in his presence. And there stands John watching and beholding all of these things in God's throne room. And here are just a few of the things that John the Revelator sees. Revelation 5, verses 8 and 9. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures, and he there is Jesus... And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song saying, worthy are you. And on the song goes. Revelation 5 verses 11 and 12. 
Then I looked and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders, the voice of many angels, numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, worthy is the lamb who was slain. Revelation 5, verses 13 and 14. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying, to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever. And the four living creatures said, Amen, and the elders fell down and worshiped. And at the end of the book, Revelation 19, verse 1 And after this, I heard what seemed to be the loud voice of a great multitude. And this is at the uh, marriage supper of the Lamb. We're there. We're part of this chorus. We are part of what John sees and hears. After this, I heard what seemed to be the loud voice of a great multitude in heaven crying out, Hallelujah, salvation, glory, and power belong to our God. The greatest blessing of heaven is God. It's God. There we will not see him through a glass darkly anymore or be muddled by our own confusions and pain and limitations. This is what Jesus is praying for. There Listen to this. There in the presence of God, everything that is not true, good, beautiful, just, holy, righteous, excellent, joyful, peaceful, and divinely glorious will melt away to nothing. This is what we'll be left with is this glorious God. So of course, Jesus prays that we will see him in all of his glory. And he prays this exactly because he loves you so much. He wants you with him for all of eternity. 